the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and uh, if you have questions that concern God's word, uh, we invite you this Easter week to give us a call again locally. The number is 843-525-1859. Toll free at our 877 number, followed by the call letters WAGP980. Or you can always email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is w, uh, tbl at wagp.net. When you call, you can, you're welcome to go on the air live. Or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question and Deb will be happy to write it down and she'll shoot it to us here uh, in the studio where we are broadcasting from this morning. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today. It is indeed, Pastor, and we've already got a number of calls that have come in and dictated their questions, so let's go with them. First, is it okay for an evangelical university or college to have a woman as president or chancellor? Well, uh, yes, uh, all things being equal. Uh, it depends what that woman uh, lifestyle is all about. Uh, again, assuming it's evangelical, assuming she is not giving up the care of her children so that she can assume some leadership position. But let's just say for the sake of argument, you have the president of an evangelical school who has uh, four dependent children, two dependent, one dependent child, doesn't matter. And she's giving that child to daycare or other means so that she can function as a university president, then she has really set a precedent uh, that is ugly and unbiblical and less than God honoring. Uh, God tells us that, you know, women are given the prime mothers are given the primary responsibility of raising their children at home. And you can't give that to someone else and truly be successful. And I know the world laughs at that and they mock that. But God's word is very, very clear. Uh, in Titus chapter two, he instructs the older women to teach the younger women. And then he spells out a curriculum. And so really true women's ministry takes uh, whatever passage they're studying, whether it's Romans or Galatians or whatever it might be. And they're not teaching the text just like a man. They're teaching the text through the lens of Titus 2, where older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. You say, I thought they came natural. No, it doesn't. Uh, love for children is not a natural thing. Uh, certainly, there is an affinity that a mom has towards her kids, but it's partly instructed. There's a way in which we love. Love doesn't happen in a vacuum. I mean, you're not going to find most women who say, well, I hate my kids. But the question is, are they loving them biblically to love their husbands, to love their 
children to be sensible, pure workers at home. Uh, oikos ergos is two Greek words that make up this word, workers at home, a home worker. Uh, in uh, amplos uh, ergos, amplos would be a vine worker. A uh, geo ergos would be a earth worker or a farmer. And so when he uses the word here, oikos ergos, he's talking about a home worker, a woman who is principally at home. That doesn't mean she's trapped within the four walls of her home, but she is raising those children and she sees that ministry from her home is vital and healthy, uh, critical to the health of a family. And so God gives some very, very clear instructions. And then he says that the word of God may not be dishonored. And so again, you've got a woman president, let's say her kids are all grown And uh, she may be giving up something if she becomes the president. Maybe she can't build it into her grandchildren or minister to her daughter-in-laws or sons-in-laws and really have an impact in that respect. Uh, Maybe, too, that she's so consumed with being the president of a university that she can't carry on her responsibility within a local church. Whereas an older woman, she's teaching the next generation. So we think we're so wise today and so savvy And what we are producing in terms of the evangelical family is a disaster. And so um, there's a lot of ifs there. I'm not saying emphatically it would be wrong, but there sure is a lot of questions I would have behind this individual to see what season of life they are at and if they are sacrificing even other commands that God has given them to do. Uh, It could be disastrous in terms of creating a feminist model at an evangelical institution. Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And a question from last week uh, we didn't get to. I wanted to know if uh, there is scripture that addresses the concept of enabling when you have a parent who's unable to care for themselves physically or financially because of sinful addiction. Uh, We know God is generous. What should a child do for this parent? Well, certainly, you know, Sometimes we can interfere with God's discipline and many times people reap the harvest from the seeds they have sown. And so if you're dealing with a parent that's living an ungodly lifestyle, let's say you have a mother or father who's living in adultery and because of that, they've brought financial hardship upon their lives. Uh, Your role is not to bail them out. Uh, Otherwise you end up underwriting their sin. And so there is a time to draw a line in the sand where you are not being dishonorable. Um, For instance, a passage that comes to mind would be 1 Timothy chapter 5. And there he is giving instructions about who the church should care for, especially in relationship to widows. And so he says, honor widows who are widows indeed, meaning they have no children or no grandchildren who can take care of them. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them, the children or grandchildren, first practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God. Obviously, when we were small, our children, uh, as children, we were taken care of by our parents and by our grandparents. Well, God says there can come a place in our lives where it is reversed and we are to show return. 
Now, very often, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 3 is applied downward in terms of, say, a dad providing for his own. And not to provide for your own is to be worse than an unbeliever. He will say that in verse 6 or verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so we often apply that downward, and I think that is a legitimate application. But we should never miss the original context, and it's upward that children and grandchildren have a responsibility to their parents and their grandparents when they are elderly. And not to make sure their needs are met is to be worse than an infidel, worse than an unbeliever. But with that said, for instance, when he goes on and he describes the widows that should be cared for, widows indeed, he said, now she who is a widow indeed, and who has been left alone, has her hope fixed on God. And then he goes on and he prescribes what kind of woman who's a widow that the church should care for. Um, he says, let a widow of uh, be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works. And if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints feet, if she has assisted those in distress and if she has devoted herself to every good work. So Paul is saying not every widow that walks in the door of the church, does the church have a responsibility to care for their needs? But there are certain widows because they are godly uh, who are worthy of the care of the local assembly. Uh, They have no family to take care of them and they have been committed to the local fellowship and they have been committed by washing the feet of the saints and they have been committed to uh, the Lord, Lord God by living a separated holy life for the Lord. Those are the widows that you should care for. So my point is, is that care sometimes is qualified in the New Testament. And that might be true even in reference to our parents. If someone is living in a sinful lifestyle and they are reaping the consequences of them, don't interfere with what God may be trying to do in their lives. And you may put some conditions on your help and rightly so and biblically so. Great question. Let's go to the next one. I think we have a caller who's waiting to get on. Indeed we do. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. Um, I was reading in Revelation and 22.12 where it says, Behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work should be. Um, curious, is, you know, is, is he speaking in the, I guess, the tribulation period when, when, when he comes back and, and he, after, the, after Armageddon? Or who is he speaking to as, as according to his work shall be at that point? Well, it's a good question. Uh, the Bible teaches that God evaluates every man according to his deeds, Christian and non-Christian alike. Uh, he is just, for instance, in Revelation twenty eleven to 15, uh, described the judgment of the lost. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Uh, Jesus makes a very similar statement in John's uh, gospel in the fifth chapter, and I'm just turning there, and he, he tells me that an hour is coming, and he's speaking of 
the resurrection hour. Um, he's not dealing simply with the exact timing, but the, the kinds of resurrection that will happen. And he speaks here in John, the fifth chapter, that there is a resurrection of life and there is a resurrection of judgment to those who did the good, a resurrection of life to those who did evil, a resurrection of judgment. So in, in saying this from John five and from John's record here in the revelation, the 20th chapter, he's not teaching that we earn salvation any more than Jesus is because Jesus in John five has just taught that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And yet he can make this incredible statement that in the end, there are two kinds of people because when a man is born again, when a person has been saved, their life changes. And so he is just affirmed salvation by grace. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So clearly it is through faith in God's gracious promises that saves the individual. And yet just a few verses later, he says, do not marvel an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear the vo- his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds are in italics in the NASB, but implied he's talking about good deeds or good works to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment, because if we have exercised genuine faith in the Lord, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation His old life has passed away and a new life has begun. And so you will know them by their fruits and a man's deeds will testify whether or not he has met the living God, not to mention in the judgment of God towards unbelievers, though hell is an awful place for anyone who goes there. All the people who are in view in Revelation 20, 11 through 15 are lost people. This is not some big general resurrection where God separates the sheep from the goat, the believer from the unbeliever. All the people who are present in Revelation 20, 11 to 15 are cast into the lake of fire. So, you know, Calvin was confused on his view of the judgment because he was confused on how future events would unfold. And interestingly, it was guys like Calvin who helped create in people's minds that there's one big, huge judgment. And that's not true. There was actually about six or seven different judgments, depending on how you count them in the scripture. For instance, the separation of the believers from the unbelievers, the sheep from the goat that is recorded in Matthew 25 happens at the end of the tribulation period. And that's different from this judgment where the lost of all time are reigned before God, before they are cast in the lake of fire. They're in Hades, the place of judgment right now, but Hades is swept into the lake of fire, which is the final resting place of unbelievers. And though hell is awful, the lake of fire, Gehenna, for anyone who goes there, it's not the same for everyone who goes there. And so in the perfect judgment and justice of God, there are somehow degrees of punishment in hell. So when Jesus speaks of it in a wholesale way, it's awful. It will cause shivers to run up and down your spine. Okay. That being said of the unbeliever, the believer also has a judgment in which he faces God. Again, we're saved by grace through faith, but Romans fourteen twelve says, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to the Lord. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the word there for judgment seat is the word bema. And a bema could be a place of punishment, 
And so Jesus stands before the Bema, the judgment seat of Pilate in the Praetorium. Uh, this week, we acknowledge that and celebrate it on this Easter week, uh, the death and resurrection of our Savior. But he's at the Bema. He's at the uh, judgment seat of Pilate, where Pilate finds him an innocent person, guilty. Um, but the Bema could also be a place of reward. It would be the place that the judges would stand on, on at the Isthmian Games. And so they would watch, say, two people uh, participate in the 100 meter race and the person who won was given a wreath. The person who lost wasn't beaten. He just wasn't rewarded. And so Jesus here is speaking of rewards. He says, I'm coming quickly, which is kind of an interesting statement. And I won't get too far into this because we will study this uh, when we come to the revelation and a week after Easter at Community Bible Church, we will begin at least a year long study of a chapter by chapter, verse by verse exposition of the book of Revelation. And so Jesus speaks of his coming as quickly. Somebody says, well, he said that 2000 years ago. And the word quickly is the word taxos. We get our word tax, ta- uh, tachometer from it. And it speaks of something that will speedily happen that once the events begin, they will, in a very short period of time, begin to unfold. And so there is a reward that is coming for the believer. And blessed are those who have washed their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life. Uh, Their reward is great, but the reward for, or the judgment for the unbeliever in the next verse is horrible. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Uh, So uh, this is an event that is describing not the rapture of the church, but the second coming to specify uh, in answer to your question. Uh, There are two events that encompass the return of Jesus from heaven. One is the rapture of the church. One is the second coming. Some people believe the two together. And they have real problems when they do that in uh, just simply interpreting the book of Revelation. Uh, But they are two separate events. Like sometimes we speak of the first coming. And when we speak of the first coming of Christ, what are we talking about? His death and resurrection? No, we're talking about Bethlehem and his uh, growing up in Mary and Joseph's home. And uh, we're speaking about his public ministry that began at the age of 30 and they went for approximately three and a half years and his death on the cross and his burial in the tomb and his resurrection on the third day and his walking on the earth for another 40 and his ascension from heaven. That's all part of the first coming program. Well, the second coming program also has a number of events in them. And so sometimes we use the term second coming uh, in a very technical way to refer to Christ's visible return to the earth. But that's distinct from the rapture. First, he comes for his church where we meet him in the air. He comes for his saints. But at the second coming, he comes back with his saints. And again, if you just interpret scripture literally, and unless there's a reason not to literally interpret the scripture that we shouldn't. But in the broadest sense, we interpret the scripture literally. Now, there might be symbolism, but we find out the meaning of that symbol, and then we literally interpret it. 
Uh, so evangelicals have affirmed a literal interpretation of the Bible. So if you take passages like Zechariah 14, where it says Jesus is coming back to the Mount of Olives, Messiah is coming back to the Mount of Olives. You meet any Jew in Israel today, there's a reason God willing, we're planning to go to Israel in May of 2018. We have a brochure coming out relatively soon in the next 30 days. But when you go to the Mount of Olives, you discover that Jewish people, if they're able, want to be buried on the Mount of Olives. Why is that? Uh, Mahak, the, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember his name. Mahatma uh, Gandhi? No, 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 no. The Jewish guy. Uh, Mahakam Begin. Um, oh, Menachem. Menachem, Menachem Begin. Uh, he is buried on the Mount of Olives. Now, most prime ministers are buried in the Jewish National Cemetery that would parallel, say, Arlington. He didn't want to be buried in their quote-unquote Arlington. He wanted to be buried on the Mount of Olives. Why? Because he was an Orthodox Jew. And he believed what the scripture said, that the Messiah is coming back literally, physically, actually, to the very mountain he ascended from heaven uh, from. He's coming back to that mountain, uh, literally, and he's gonna, his feet will touch the Mount of Olives. So, again, if you just interpret the scripture plainly, you can only come to those conclusions. And so uh, the second coming program encompasses a lot, the rapture. Uh, there's a short space of time between the rapture and the signing of the peace treaty. Uh, it appears to be very quickly though. And uh, the seven year tribulation begins to unfold, culminating with uh, the return of Jesus uh, to the earth where he rules and reigns for a thousand years and then sums up uh, heaven and earth as we know it with a new heaven and a new earth. That's all part of the second coming program. Good question. Hope that helps. All right. Very good. Our next question comes from John in New Hampshire who writes, I know many genuine God-loving, God-seeking, born-again Christians that by grace have poured their lives into living according to the word of God. The evidence of their maturing faith in Jesus surrounds them and is a testimony to the power of God. These friends come from many different evangelical denominations. Some differences in interpretation slash truth are small. Some differences seem rather large. So my question is, even though these differences may be small, why has God allowed his church to be divided into so many small groups? Why does God allow this difference of opinion in genuinely sincere Christians that seek truth in the word of God? Is it sin? Well, it's a great question, and, and it's uh, not a simple answer because there's a number of causes for division that God gives in his word. I've just turned to Jude in verse 19. We usually, when you hear the book of Jude referenced, they won't say Jude 1, 19, because there's only one chapter. So if you're new to the Bible, they'll just say Jude 19. That doesn't mean Jude chapter 19, but Jude verse 19. And there I read, these are the ones who cause division, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. He's talking here in this short little letter about apostates. An apostate is someone who said they were a Christian, looked like a Christian, talked like a Christian, but not a real Christian doc, uh, an unbeliever. And so in describing these unbelievers who sneak into the church unnoticed, how do they get in unnoticed? Because they have the right words and the right testimony. Uh, There are certainly people who join churches who don't even know what the plan of salvation is. And the church very naively 
without even seeing if they understand the basic theology of the gospel, they admit them into the membership. But lay that aside, there are people, certain persons who have crept in unnoticed, he says in verse 4, who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so these are people who come in, but they end up apostatizing, falling away because they were never really true Christians. And Paul warns, if you remember, the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 of such people who will come into the church, but who will be of the type who will, from within, drag away folks because they're not genuine Christians. So these are the ones who cause divisions. They're worldly-minded. Why? Because they don't have the mind of Christ. They haven't been regenerated by the Spirit. And the next phrase specifies that devoid of the spirit, or you could translate it without the Holy Spirit. And that's the way we are in our natural bodies. We are physically alive, but we are spiritually dead. So there are some people who come into the church who are division makers because they're lost. And these worldly minded, self-centered people uh, end up creating real heartache. That's one cause of division. Another cause of division in the church concerns those who are carnally minded. That is, they've been born again, but they are out of fellowship with God. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul begins to address this problem that there were divisions in the church. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. And then he goes on and there's these different factions. One group says, I am of Paul. Another, I am of Apollos and so forth. Has Christ been divided? Of course not. In chapter three, he says, I couldn't speak to you as to spiritual men, mature believers, but what you were, babies in Christ. And so as babies, I gave you milk to drink and not solid food. Why? Because you weren't able. Why not? Because you're just babies. That's what you do with babies. Indeed, even now, uh, some four years later, when he writes this epistle, this letter to these folks, indeed, even now, you are babies. You are carnal. You are worldly minded. You are fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? Yes, you are. For one, one says, I am of Paul and another, I am of Apollos. Uh, are you not mere men? Aren't you acting like natural unbelieving men? Yes, you are. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Just servants from, from whom you believed. So one cause of division in the church is babyhood. Uh, babies cry, babies whine. And when you give babies a platform in the church, you even uh, really highlight their ability to create division in the church. And of course, there was a time in America where, though there were many stripes, there was a whole lot less division than there is in our day. So many of you who are listening to my voice, you have come to faith at this time in human history and you're not aware of what it was like, say, 100 years ago. And the church in America was much more unified. Uh, in fact, there was a movement in the early 1900s 
because a number of the seminaries that had for a long time produced solid evangelical pastors, whether it was Princeton or Yale or Harvard, had departed from their historical roots. And because of that, they were creating a new batch of Protestant pastors who were less than orthodox in the faith. And so one of the questions that Christians were asking around 1910 was, who do we link arms with? And so there was a group of businessmen who got pastors to write a series of booklets called The Fundamentals. And they said these are kind of non-negotiables that every true Bible-believing Christian espouses. And these things were printed by the millions. And the reason they had to print them is because of this division that had come into the church. And that division, of course, was caused by unbelievers. Now, in this day and age, but my point is, is that the believers, for the most part, were unified. And so a Baptist got along with a Methodist. A Methodist got along with a Presbyterian and so forth. Why? Because on the secondary issues, they weren't stumbling blocks to fellowship. But now we're living in a different time in church history, where I would say that Dr. Billy Graham was absolutely correct, where some years ago he made the statement that over 90 to 95 percent of those who really have met the living God here in the American church have remained babies in Christ. And certainly the seeker-sensitive movement, you know, Bill Hybels and Rick Warren and others through the new paradigm they've convinced pastors to follow, they've only increased the problem by producing more and more baby Christians. So like never before in the history of the church, we have people who are baby Christians, not by virtue of the fact that they are new to the faith, but some where years and decades have transpired, but they've stayed baby Christians. And of course, the Bible teaches that at the end of the age before the return of Jesus from heaven, the church will have that kind of reputation. It won't be a mature church. It will be a babyfied, lukewarm, worldly church in a lot of ways. And that's, I think, a major cause for the division. Uh, look, all division is not bad. Uh, we, we should underscore that. You know, we think that well, we're all supposed to hold hands and link arms, and that's not true. Someone who says that is very ignorant of the Scripture. Certainly within your local f- church, if God wants you, uh, if, if you're a Bible-believing local church with born-again believers, there shouldn't be uh, a church that is just wrought with division. Uh, Jesus said, your testimony of a church, they will know that uh, I am sent by the Father as they see your oneness, like the Father and I have a sense of oneness, not a spirit of division. That's not to say that there will never be any division in the local assembly, because there will be. Uh, In fact, Paul will say a little bit later, let me just turn there to 1 Corinthians 11, and uh, he's addressing the subject of the uh, Lord's Supper. He says, for in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it for, listen to this, for there must also be factions among you. Why? In order that those who are approved may become evident among you. So God allows some factions in the church. So that over time, those who really belong to God will be made evident. So not all faction is wrong. And again, Jesus himself said in in Matthew chapter 10, I'm turning there 
in, in the 34th verse, he says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy than me and so forth. So all division is not bad. Some is caused by unbelievers. Some is caused by babified Christians. And I think that's the major cause of division in the church today. I'm not talking about apostates who are mad at churches like Community Bible Church because we say gay marriage is wrong. And we have two Presbyterian churches in our church in our town that are practicing gay marriage. And we have Methodist churches, United Methodist churches that are praying about it under the direction of the bishops. And they get mad at me because I say they're wrong. There's nothing to pray about. If the bishop was a man of God, he'd say, this is a wickedness. We don't have to pray about it because God has spoken and has not stuttered. So I'm not talking about that. But I am talking about born again Christians who are lukewarm, who act like babies, and they cause division. Unbelievers who come into every church, they cause the division. And God allows some division to take place that you might really see who are his. All right, great question. Let's go to the next one. All right, Jonathan from Gadsden, Alabama writes, in Matthew 24, Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Help me better understand this verse. My specific question is, didn't we all come from Adam and Eve or Noah and his family? What does Jesus mean by all the nations when we are one people? Also, what's your view of the new Christian standard Bible? Thank you. Well, yes, some really great questions. And this is the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24. And Jesus came out from the temple just to set the context and was going away when the disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. So if you've been to Israel, and maybe some of you would like to go in May of 18 with me, um, but as you walk down from the Temple Mount, you walk down into the Kidron Valley, uh, which is also the Valley of Decision that the prophet Joel speaks up, and you begin to progress up a hill, you come through the Garden of Gethsemane, and you make your way to the top of the Mount of Olives. Um, they call it the Mount of Olives. There are some terms in Hebrew that have some different nuances than say in English. I forgot what the technical definition was. I think I knew it in the sixth grade, but I think, uh, between the base of a hill and the top of a hill had to be at least 1100 feet to be dictated a mountain. Um, well, so what we might call a mountain, they might just call a big hill. Uh, I mean, uh, what we might call a big hill, they might call a mountain. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is a, is a huge lake. Uh, there's no salt water in it. It's fresh water. So terms can mean different things. And so that's why it's always important to go back. But you walk up this big, big hill called the Mount of Olives, and they're in a discussion, and they're pointing out the temple buildings. And Jesus says, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you that not one stone shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Now, if you read Luke's account, his focus is on what's going to happen towards 70 AD. Matthew's account, because his focus is on a Jewish gospel, uh, he's going to focus largely on what is going to happen at the end of the age. 
And so they're sitting on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And so Jesus then begins to unfold in verses four through 14, the first half of the great tribulation period. In verse 15, you deal with the middle of the tribulation period. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, that happens midpoint three and a half years into the tribulation. And then after that, here in the Olivet Discourse, he unfolds what happens in the second half of the tribulation, where the tribulation becomes great tribulation. Okay, with that said, verses five through 14 is a picture of what is happening in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. And it reminds us in verse 12, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Now, that's not to say that some of the events described here could not find partial fulfillment before the rapture. They can. But understand, nothing has ever needed to be fulfilled for the rapture of the church to happen. It has always been imminent. It could happen at any moment. There's all kinds of prophecy that is mentioned in this chapter alone that has to happen for the glorious return of Jesus from heaven when the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, verse 30 of the chapter, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Uh, All kinds of stuff, like the abomination of desolation, uh, which I just read from verse 15. Uh, But the gospel will in its entirety go out to every tribe, tongue, and nation during the tribulation period. Now, there's a lot that's happening in our day. Uh, Organizations like Wycliffe used to say that, you know, 2035, uh, they used to be 2050, then they dropped it to 2035 when all of the remaining tongues of those people on planet earth will have some portion of scripture in their hands. Uh, Very often they'll start with, you know, the gospel of John or the gospel of Mark, and they'll do a new Testament book and a few old Testament books. And and some have the whole new Testament without the old Testament. Some have the whole of the Bible. There are about 6,000 languages in the world. About 4,000 have some portion of the Bible, either in its entirety or a few books in their hands. There's about 2,000 languages that are left. Um, Now Wycliffe and other like organizations project 2025. Uh, That's in less than 10 years for the completion of the remaining languages of the Bible. Community Bible Church just adopted a people uh, that have no translation of the Bible in their hands. And by God's grace, the people of Community Bible Church are going to pay for a translation to be done for, we call them the Burunda people, but that's just kind of a pseudo name to protect those people because of the persecution that's there. But people will adopt, say, a verse of the Bible for its translation. Maybe $25 to say, I want this verse done. And they'll write their name next to the verse. And by God's grace, we're going to get the um, Jesus film in their language, as well as the translation of the Bible. But what Jesus is speaking of here specifically is what is going to happen during the great tribulation period. There's no question that during the tribulation period, every tribe, tongue, and nation is going to hear the gospel. God is going to have their attention. And even those who are not saved through the testimony of the 144,000 Jews 
who become like the Billy Grahams of the coming tribulation period, which results, by the way, in people to get down to the specifics of your question. And after these things, after these 144,000 Jewish evangelists are sealed and protected by God where no one can destroy them. After these things, I looked, John says, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and people and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes in palm branches were in their hands. And so these were people who are saved during the time of the great tribulation, people who lost their lives because of it. And every tribe, tongue and nation is represented. Not to mention in Revelation 14, the only time it takes place ever in scripture where God actually uses an angel to preach the eternal gospel. So what the church maybe is struggling and attempting to do today, it will be finished during the time of the great tribulation. Now you say, if we're all from Adam and Eve, then why all these tribes and tongues and nations? Well, the Bible doesn't dismiss the fact that we are from one blood. And even Paul affirms that in the Acts of the Apostles. But the fact that we are all direct descendants from Adam and Eve, and in that sense we're all related, doesn't dismiss that there are now tribes and tongues and nations. Now Hitler said that, for instance, Jewish people and black people were um, further down on the evolutionary scale and needed to be destroyed and annihilated. Um, So his view of evolution helped influence his anti-Semitic and his hatred for black people along with some other groups. The Bible doesn't teach that we evolved and it teaches that we are from one blood. Well, how do you explain the various races? Well, the, they don't have an explanation. Uh, the evolutionists, we do. And our explanation goes back to the tower of Babel where man got so high and high mind, high minded that he, God, brought Babel. It's the Hebrew word for confusion. And so they were separated into these language groups. And if I spoke English and you spoke Chinese and we couldn't understand each other, I would gravitate towards someone else who spoke my language so we could have a conversation and function. And that's, and that's exactly what happened is the language groups married within one another and the various racial peculiarities began to develop. And so you have people with different types of slanted eyes and different amounts of melatonin in their skin and so forth. And uh, that is the explanation God would give us in his word. So God doesn't dismiss the fact that there are tribes and tongues and nations today. That is a reality. And we will see that reality in heaven where we see all these various peoples of the world that God has saved by his grace and mercy. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and um, Kathy from Dickinson, North Dakota writes, how would you respond to someone who challenges the idea that responding to general revelation leads to specific revelation? The person I was debating this issue with is of the Calvinist reform persuasion. I think I satisfied myself with my answers from Scripture, but would greatly appreciate your thoughts on this. Well, I've just um, published a new book that has come out on Amazon, and it concerns the state of the unevangelized. Are the unevangelized really lost? Are the unevangelized really lost? That's the title of it. 
And in that book, I address this issue in great specificity. Uh, We're offering it to our Search the Scripture Foundation partners and anyone who gives a gift uh, to Search the Scriptures in these uh, six or seven weeks. Uh, With that said, you can buy it on Amazon. And with that said, I don't make a dime on it. Uh, It's uh, I don't earn any money from Search the Scriptures or any books that are sold. But I address a very important issue, and it seems like a rather simple question that, you know, just college students ask, you know, well, what about the guy in Africa who's never heard the name of Jesus? You mean to tell me that God's going to send him to hell for having never believed in a savior in whom he's never heard? I can't worship that kind of God. I can't accept the God of the Bible if he is like that. That's their rationale. And so people think, well, this is a question we need to answer. But really, it's it's a larger question than that and that it has implications in a lot of other realms. Um, it, it really, in essence, comes down to every major realm of theology that we as Christians espouse. Is the church, say, God's unique witness when we affirm that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. Is that true or is it not? So the doctrine of ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church is challenged by that question. Is the Bible absolutely authoritative when it says, for there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Is that true or not? So the doctrine of bibliology is affected how God will sum up the world. Will he really separate the believers from the unbelievers? The doctrine of eschatology is affected. So every realm of theology, I won't run down that. I cover it though in the book um, is challenged. So this is a question that not that Christians should be able to answer, not just as dealing with, you know, searching unbelievers or smoke screens that some lost people will throw before you, not because they really want an answer, but because they're trying to give you an excuse as to why they might not believe. But this is also a question that Christians need to know how to answer. So here's the short answer. The short answer is that God has revealed himself to all men in some way. No one can say, is there a God? Does God exist? Because number one, the creation around us shouts of God's existence. His eternal attributes, his divine nature are clearly seen, Paul says, through the things he's created. So biblically speaking, there are no atheists in the world. Every man has a knowledge of God. He can deny it with his lips, but in his heart, he knows it to be true. He can suppress it with his will, but in his heart of hearts, he knows it to be true. The second way God has revealed himself is not just from without, but from within. And so in Romans 2, Paul looks at Gentiles, and there he's using the word synonymous with a pagan. Uh, When Jesus said, don't pray the way the Gentiles pray, he is uh, using the word synonymously there as with a pagan. So the, the term Gentile has two usages in the New Testament. One, a technical use to distinguish it from someone who's a descendant of Abraham. So I'm not a descendant of Abraham. Uh, I am a Gentile. But it's also used in the New Testament as a synonym for a pagan. Because for the most part, the pagans were Gentiles during the time of the Bible. They they had smushed what God had revealed to them and had turned to idols. And so in Romans 2, he speaks of these Gentiles, these pagans of sorts. 
And he reminds us um, here for when Gentiles do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law a lot of themselves and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So they, these Gentiles who have no Bible, know instinctively right and wrong. Why? Because God wrote their, his law into their hearts and God's law is a reflection of his character such that when they do what's right, their conscience affirms them. When they do what is wrong, their conscience accuses them. Well, who are they pleasing or displeasing? Paul's argument is the God who made them. So they are without excuse. So if a man takes that general revelation that God has revealed to all men in response to it, the biblical principle is that light responded to brings more light. And there are examples of this in scripture like Cornelius or Cornelius, if you prefer, in Acts chapter 10. And this man was not a believer. He wasn't saved. We know that because when Peter in the 11th chapter of Acts gives testimony to the man's life, he includes him as someone who met the living God, who became a believer because of Peter's witness to them. But this man who is a member of an Italian cohort named Cornelius, a devout man, one who feared God with all his household, even gave to the poor. Uh, He prayed on a regular basis. Um, God responded to this man's response. The biblical principle light responded to brings more light. And you see that in this man's life. And so God sends an angel to him. The angel doesn't give him the plan of salvation. As I mentioned earlier, there's only one time in all the Bible where an angel preaches the gospel. And that's at the very end of time during the time of the great tribulation. So God doesn't give him the gospel because angels aren't recipients of grace. God likes typically the grace of God to be preached by those who are recipients of grace. And so in all the rest of the examples in the Bible, God uses people who've been saved by grace to preach grace. And so he gives them this angel who tells them to go to a particular place. And he brings a vision to Peter and deals with some things in Peter's heart. And he brings the two men together and he ends up hearing the plan of salvation and he meets the living God and he's born again. On the other hand, when a person hardens his heart, The biblical principle is light suppressed brings darkness. And so Paul will say, professing to be wise, they've become fools. They've exchanged the glory of the living God. And so there in Romans one, you see the judgment of God on a people. And really, if you study the chapter carefully, it's a picture of America. America is under the judgment of God. America is a nation that has said, no, we don't want you, God. We began to say it in a very affirmative way in the 1960s. Even before that, there were some things that led up to it, but I won't go there. But just to make it simple, in the 60s, we said, we don't want God. We don't want the Bible in our schools. We don't want children to pray to him. In fact, we want to replace the biblical model of evolution with uh, evolution Uh, the biblical model of creationism with evolution. We want children to believe that we evolved, that God didn't make us, that we came from monkeys and they want you to espouse this. And as we did that, 
you know, a lot of Americans bought that and God gave us over into immorality and we continued down that journey. And now God has given us over to homosexuality and we're continuing down that journey. And what follows is really an awful description of a society where if you read that list at the end of Romans one, you think, man, this is like the daily newspaper. Even the things I'm reading here at the end of Romans one, this is not what America was like even 25 years ago. This is a nation under the judgment of God. So the biblical principle is that when you take light and you suppress it, it brings darkness. And that's what we're witnessing in this day. And that's why, you know, I've told people, yeah, we should try to get people who represent us, who espouse, you know, the Judeo-Christian ethic, but that's not the real solution to Americans, America's problems. We're not going to save America if we have a born-again, Bible-believing, quiet-time-reading, you know, president in the Oval Office every morning. America, unless we repent, we're going down the tubes. But if America did repent, I believe God could take a child and a child could lead us. Uh, our problem is a God problem. And unless we acknowledge that, then we are in desperate, desperate trouble. But I would say to Kathy, who's written us here from North Dakota, uh, get the booklet, uh, The State of the Unevangelized, and I give a much more detailed answer with all the scripture, and it's in writing, and uh, I think that would be of huge help to you. Okay, a quick question. Um, my wife is looking to find a Bible study devotional for her quiet time. This person writes, uh, while I feel fairly confident in knowing the background and doctrine of pastors um, that are leading men, uh, I lost my spot here, I like knowledge of women authors and for devotionals that contain sound doctrine. Uh, not that there isn't a, a plethora of those uh, individuals out there. Rather, I simply haven't ever looked for one. My wife and I have been married for a few years, and I want to make sure I'm helping her grow in her faith. Any direction or information you could share would be greatly appreciated. Well, there are a lot of books that address, say, one issue. And there's a lot of good women authors that address a specific issue. But in terms of broad, overall biblical topics, let me give you three. I'd say Elizabeth Elliott, anything written by her is going to be superb. Really good, solid work that she did. She's in heaven now, enjoying uh, her reward. I'd say Nancy Lee DeMoss, who you hear on this station every noon time hour at 1230 to 1. Uh, she's produced a lot of great Bible studies for women that are really super. And the third woman I'd suggest would be my wife. Uh, go to Mothering from the Heart. Read her blog. Um, she has a number of series for ladies uh, that are extremely helpful, like Following Fallen Men or How to Raise Godly Boys or How to Raise Godly Girls and so on and so forth. Just scores of series that you can listen to online that would make for a tremendous study of God's Word. Well, another hour has passed away, but we're so glad that you could join us here for the Bible Line today. If you don't have a place to worship this Easter, I invite you to Community Bible Church, meeting in Graniteville, meeting in the Bluffton Hilton Head, but also meeting here in Beaufort. Go to communitybiblechurch.us for details. Mm-hmm.